And good morning and welcome to Moment of Truth. I am your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM, and that is broadcast in Toronto and Ottawa. In Toronto at 106.5 FM, in Ottawa at 95.7. You can also listen anywhere across Canada by downloading the Radio Canada app and in uh, just uh, inserting Element FM 95.7 or 106.5. So uh, spread that around. Tell your friends, tell your family, whoever might want to be listening. You can also listen online, of course, uh, through our website. This morning on the show, we are very pleased to welcome uh, someone who is familiar in, in many ways uh, to us. His name is Charlie Angus. He's a federal member of parliament for the NDP party. And uh, he's uh, been in politics for the Timmins-James Bay area since 2004. And he's also the privacy and ethics uh, critic. Uh, he's also the NDP critic for Indigenous and Northern Affairs Youth. And he also ran as a candidate for uh, the, the party in 2017 for, uh, for the, the leadership race. He is calling us from, as he said, uh, snowed in Cobalt, Ontario. Good morning, Charlie. Welcome to the program. Hey, Wache, thank you for having me on the show. <laughs> oh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. And, um, you know, for people that aren't familiar with Cobalt, that's very close to the Quebec border up there, isn't it? Uh, yes, Cobalt is uh, a historic mining community. I live on an old abandoned mine site. This is some of the richest silver finds in the world. Um, we're very close to the Quebec border, to the nearest indigenous communities are Temiskaming First Nation. This is their traditional territory and Tamagami First Nation, and I've spent many years working with Tamiskami First Nation, and uh, it's a beautiful area here. But we're deep, deep, deep in snow, my friend, deep. Uh, okay, how deep? <laughs> well, there's four feet of snow on my roof right now, Wow! So, and I can't seem to get up to get it off. Is, is it the light stuff, though, at least? It's not like the heavy stuff. Heavy snow, yeah. This it is, is heavy this snow. This is end-time okay. snow. Mm. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, but I, I hope you're, uh, you're, you're, you have enough uh, 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 food and, and water and things to keep you going, and you're, you're there with power, obviously, so you're good to go. We've got power, and the, and the Blue Jays are out in the front yard right now, so they <laughs> oh, don't really? seem to care. They're, they're waiting for spring. Yeah. There's a whole pack of Blue Jays. Right, in, right, right as we're talking, I'm watching them. That's a good sign. That's a good sign. Yeah. Uh, again, I want to say welcome to the program. It's great that you're able to join us, and... Charlie, as, a, as, as someone who has been out there uh, always uh, 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 standing up for, for people's rights and making, be vo- being vocal about many things, especially Indigenous, um, you're no stranger to the, to the uh, amount of things that we could talk about today in, in terms of Indigenous issues. That's for sure. Certainly. Well, thank you. I, I take the work very seriously. Uh, I, I got my start in politics literally on a blockade. Uh, I've worked on the Indigenous files for many years because, uh, to me, this is the fundamental relationship in Canada. It's always been the fundamental relationship between the original people and the people who came here. In 150 years, it's still going to be the fundamental relationship. So the question our generation needs to ask is, what kind of relationship is that going to be? Is it going to be the toxic, abusive relationship that white society has had for the last 150 years? Or are we going to get our act together and start to build something much better, much more inclusive, and much more whole? And I think the opportunities uh, for Canadians to understand the changes that we can make from this to the benefit of all of us is going to, it's going to be really transformative. So we've got to make it happen. 
Uh, Charlie, I'm not sure if you're on a cordless phone or your corded phone. I don't know if you're walking around, but we're we're losing you a little bit there. So I'm not sure. Oh, someone was a uh, call was trying to come in. That's okay. why. All righty. Yeah. Um, so you know, with with you saying that, I'm, I'm wondering since you got into politics and your involvement with Indigenous issues, have you seen a change to that I regard? Seen, and and, a, and yeah. you know, in in the in the right direction. Um, I don't think there's ever we're, ne- we're ever standing still on these issues. Mm-hmm. Change is happening. Um, you know, when I was working with the Algonquin Nation 16 years ago, the only way we could get anyone to come to the table was literally by ho- blockading highways. Mm. That's transformed in- enormously now. Uh, you know, industry understands they need to come to the table. Government less so. Government talks a lot better, but things haven't changed there. But the big change I've seen uh, has been in the empowerment of Indigenous youth to take control mm. and to start expressing uh, their point of view really clearly and, and with yep. moral force. And I think Canadians are understanding more than they've ever understood before. It doesn't mean we still don't have a, a long way to go. The big the big barrier, really, is still Indian affairs. And, you know, I've said this to various ministers over the years. I've met good Indian affairs ministers. I've seen bad Indian affairs ministers. I've met lazy Indian affairs ministers. I've met racist Indian affairs ministers. And the only there's not much difference between any of them at the end of the day. The only thing that's ever made Indian affairs change is by putting fire to the feet of the government and forcing, forcing that institution of denial uh, of rights to actually live up to their obligations. And that fight's still ongoing, and it's, it's ongoing with the Trudeau government the way kinder words now, but action is still uh, really, it has to be fought for every single day to change that, the structure that was the colonial structure of denial of rights. And, uh, and that works ongoing, and it's not going to stop. You know, I'm glad you mentioned obligations, uh, because I, I, I still don't think that, that, that the large non-Indigenous community understands that when we hear about things like, uh, you know, it's costing the federal government this much money to do such and such for, you know, uh, community or, or Indigenous people, that it's not really a cost. It is that obligation. And the obligation came from those treaty agreements and, and it came through from uh, having signed and handed over the, uh, the rich land and, and the uh, resources to Canada in, in exchange for that. Yeah, I think this is the, the his, history lesson being lived now that, you know, non-Indigenous Canada is starting to undertake and needs to really get their head around. You know, nobody ever taught me about the treaty. Mm. Uh, I was 37 years old before I ever stepped foot on a reserve in my region. Mm. Um, you know, that was the kind of disconnect that existed. And when I first was elected and went into the James Bay region, everyone said to me that I had to understand the treaty. And I was like, well, the treaty, what? That's like old history. Hmm. Well, Teresa Spence, her mm-hmm. grandfather signed the treaty. Stan Luted, uh, his grandfather signed the treaty. You know, I've talked to people in Cat Lake whose grandfather signed the treaty. Transferred the richest hydro, gold, copper, forestry wealth in the world and turned Toronto from an economic backwater into the number one jurisdiction in the world for mining capital. You look at the downtown of Toronto, you've got to understand 
that the wealth of those giant towers came from the territories of Treaty 9. That was what the treaty did. And my grandfather came to Canada to work in those mines mm. because the treaty had been signed. So when they say we're treaty people, we got to understand that the treaty was supposed to be. The oral agreements were about the sharing of the land. But what it was was about the taking of the land and the displacing of people. And in my region of Treaty 9, too many of those communities have existed as like literally internal displacement camps so that the resources could be taken. That's going to change now. And the future conversation is what is the just development of resources? What is the sustainable resources? What is the development of resources that is not colonial in structure and just capitalist extractive, but actually make sure that the communities have have an increasing say about the development of the territories. That's when the treaty is going to make real, and that's when Canada is going to start to improve. You know, you, you mentioned that that you, at the end of the day, uh, all Indigenous affairs ministers that you had seen all all turned out the same, regardless of of, of who how they they were as as people in that position. Uh, and you know, it, it disheartened me to hear you say that. But at the same time, I understand it. But when it comes down to the bottom line in, in regard to anything that, that, that moves forward, and, and I thought about this prior to, uh, to speaking with you, and then I actually saw it on your, your, some of the, the things that you were, you, you've been speaking about, and that is a lack of political will, a lack of political yeah. will to actually do anything. That, that's what it comes down to. I, uh, the lack of political will think one of the overwhelming drivers and you know to put it really bluntly there's never been a government that thought they would get any votes by dealing with the so-called Indian question except to try and remove it um, and that's that's been the unfortunate fact they've always spent they've always figured and this is the fundamental attitude that the colonial structures had they always figured what was the bare minimum that it would cost them to live up to their legal obligations and they always ensured that they spent at least half of what was the bare minimum um, to save taxpayers money. And that's why we have underfunded schools. That's why we have communities like Cat Lake in crisis. That's why we have uh, the suicide crisis from the lack of opportunities for youth. And when government realizes they actually have these legal obligations, you know, they're not doing any favors here. This is their legal obligation as a government to provide services. Once we start to get the proper to close those gaps, you're going to see the development of the communities accelerate dramatically, and it's going to have a huge economic impact. So, you know, we've had ministers who cared. I mean, Jane Philpott, I had a lot of respect for, but I had to say to her, Jane, you, you know, you'll be here for a bit, and then you'll go. The structure will still be there unless we start to take that structure down and put accountability mechanisms into the communities, um, you know. We, we get warm fuzzies, but we're not getting the change that the young people need. Well, that that's the other side of this, isn't that? Isn't it that that's a four-year term, and then and then there's another election, and and you never know what you're going to get next time. Um, I, I guess the other thing, having said that, is, um, well, it slipped my mind. Whatever we were going for, but let's talk about let's talk about uh, Cat Lake for a minute. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what's your, I mean, it, it's just another community that's, that's in crisis and, uh, and, and it's ongoing. I mean, we hear this all the time. Well, um, you know, Cat Lake was, I think, again, should have been an, yet another wake up call for Canada. Uh, I became aware of the situation when they declared a state of emergency and it just reminded me of 
the issues that I've dealt with in my own region, in Attawapiskat State of Emergency, Keshechuan State of Emergency. We had one in Fort Albany. And Cat Lake is, is in the far northwest. It's in another riding. And I reached out to them with Saul Mamakwa, our provincial MPP, who is doing incredible work on the ground for Indigenous rights. We started talking with the community. We tried talking with the government. And nothing happened. Like So, you know, to the listeners, how is it possible that a community declares a state of emergency and nobody from government bothers to even respond? You know, if London declared a state of emergency, if Guelph declared a state of emergency, boy, all the resources on the planet go there. An Indigenous community declares a state of emergency and they figure they'll just wait it out. And it literally took people getting sick and dying in Cat Lake to shame the government. So we've been working with the community. We have an agreement in place to start to remediate, but what we always have is insufficient funds, the bare minimum, the Band-Aid solutions, so that the Band-Aid you know, literally is taken off another community and put onto this one. The overall problem that we're seeing in Cat Lake is the overall problem we're seeing in northern Manitoba, northern Saskatchewan, all through Treaty 9, uh, as the horrific state of housing and the housing is causing so much health problems because of the mold uh it's causing mental health problems for young people it's the crisis it's the the lack of basic funded infrastructure that's tearing these communities uh you know their future apart yeah um i believe you have been to atawapiscat no well, i've been that uh, Charlie, and sorry, Charlie, you, you, you are, uh, you're cutting out on us a little bit there. Could you just repeat that? Sure. Um, I've been in Attawapiskat many times, mm. and uh, it's it's in my writing, and uh, I'm, I stay very close to Attawapiskat. Yeah, in fact, you, your book uh, that you that you wrote, uh, Children of the Broken, Broken Treaty, Canada's Lost Promise, and One Girl's Dream, I believe, is partly based on, on Shannon's dream. Uh, who unfortunately uh, lost her life in a, in a car accident, but uh, was a, a very strong uh, advocate for getting that high school, that, that beautiful school that they now have built there. Well, Shannon was an extraordinary youth leader, and uh, I had the great privilege of knowing Shannon when she was just a 13-year-old kid who was not going to put up with the, degrading, the degradation that they were facing, the lack of basic rights that were... That, facing children in Attawapiskat. And uh, I watched her career, you know, transform from a nervous youth to someone calling up the government. And I think that that moment in 2000 and, uh, 2008, when she stood on the steps of Parliament and called out the government, that was the first moment when an Indigenous youth called out the power structure. Yeah. And Shannon launched literally a revolution of change, and it's mm-hmm. continuing even though we lost her at age 15. And so I wanted to write the book about not just Shannon, but how did we get there? How did mm-hmm. we get to a point where, you know, in Canada, countries rich as ours, basic rights of Indigenous youth continued to be denied, and where do we go? And to me, Shannon's a really great model because... Her story inspires young people, and we need hero stories. We need people to see that change can happen in a really dramatic way. And she's been recognized as now one of the most 150 most important women in Canadian history. And I just, mm-hmm. I just marvel at that. You know, yeah. the young girl from Attawapiskat who just wasn't afraid to stand up. And mm-hmm. I see young change makers like her coming along to make this country better. 
Yeah, it was it was quite something to see, and and people can still see her online. Uh, you can see if you go uh, look up Shannon's uh, dream, you can you can see this online if you're not familiar with her story or what she did. You can actually uh, find that online just by uh, typing in Shannon's dream, and. Um, you know, you mentioned something else, uh, Charlie, about um, you know what if there was a, a crisis, an emergency, and, and no one and no one came. Uh, it, it, you know, it rings so true when you say that. Yeah, and you know, this is what we've seen in the communities time after time, uh, and it's the same with the suicide crisis that we've mm. seen. Um, you know, in Laloche and the Scandaga. Pekanjikum, Attawapiskat. You know, it's like every single time government watches this happening and does nothing. And then, you know, when the national media and now even the international media call government and say, hey, how come so many Indigenous youth are dying in this community? Immediately the government starts putting up the tweets, you know, they're sorry, there's a tragedy. I, I have no time for that. A tragedy is a young person stepping out and getting hit by a car. Young people dying time after time after time in the same pattern is not a tragedy. It's systemic negligence. Like, Mm -hmm. these are patterns that can be broken. And this is one of the reasons I'm really pushing in Parliament this coming month for a government to commit to a national suicide action plan. Mm -hmm. We can learn lessons from what happened in Wapakika. We can learn lessons from what happened in Attawapiskat. You know, but we have to make it the priority that we're going to be proactive and make sure that young people have resources rather than reactive and wait for them starting to die. Because once you're plunged into a suicide crisis, it's really hard to pull things back from the brink. And we should never be in that situation ever, ever, ever in this country. You know, before uh, we have to take a break in a couple of minutes, but before we get there, I want to go back to something I did think of what I was what I was uh, wanted to mention to you earlier. Uh, you mentioned um, the the cost that, that that the government looks at and says, "Oh, it's going to cost you know taxpayers X amount of dollars." Um, so my one question is, is 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 in regard to that. But the but the leading question up to that is going back to what you learned as a politician and and not knowing about the trees. I'm wondering, do you think that in general, politicians know about the treaties themselves? Do you think they are educated in regard to to the relationship with First Nations and the treaties in Canada? Uh, I don't think we really... I think there's talk now about the treaties, but we don't really know what the treaties meant. Mm. And we don't know how they were deliberately broken. Like, you know, in the West, you know, the signing of, you know, Treaty 6 and Treaty 4, where, you know, it was understood that the Buffalo were going to fail because the whites were killing them all. And Mm. the part of the signing of the treaty is, okay, we'll make an agreement, but if the Buffalo fails you will work with us to get through the famine as we transition. And as soon as the buffalo failed, the government cut off all the food and starved, you know, the Assiniboine, the, you know, the Blackfoot, the Cree, uh, onto, onto the reserves. Like, mm. the, the treaty was a two-way relationship. It wasn't a surrender of the land. Right. And once you know the history, you begin to say, ah, so this is how we got to where we are. Right. And that's, that's a lesson. We, we're starting to talk, but we need to learn more. Yeah. Um, so the other thing is, is that unfortunate comment you made about the government thinking, oh, what's this going to cost the taxpayers if we do this? And, and, and it's unfortunate that, that it's being thought of as a cost and not an obligation and not, not as a way to, to benefit all Canadians by, you know, by helping Indigenous people. That, that, and it's not just the right, it's, it's the obligation and it's, the, it's what, what should be going on, it's what should be happening. 
Well, I think the worst scenario was during the Attawapiskat housing crisis when Stephen Harper stood up in the House of Commons and he said, you know, we gave every man, woman and child in that community $50,000 and we're going to find out what happened to that money. It was such an ugly statement and it really, uh, you know, started the race baiting. Mm. Nobody would ever ever say, you know, over the last four years, we gave every man, woman, and child in Brampton X amount of dollars. Mm. What what they were doing was dividing up, um, you know, the per capita cost of delivering services. And if you added it up in the Attawapiskat situation, it represented about $8,000 per person per year for infrastructure, for health, and for education and other stuff. You know, in the city of Toronto, we actually did our own math. It's probably about $24,000 per person. But nobody ever says it costs us $24,000 per person to keep people in Toronto because that's a ridiculous statement. These are the basic costs of delivering services to communities. So why is it that we always put a price on delivering services to Indigenous communities and families and not just the overall costs are factored in? Education is a cost to the taxpayer, but it's it's a cost because it benefits us. Healthcare is a cost. We don't divide it up individually. We say this is a social obligation. So we have to get our heads around that with the obligations to pay properly into Indigenous communities for proper services. Right. Uh, Charlie, we're going to have to take a pause, so please don't go away. Uh, Stay on the line. We will be right back on Moment of Truth and Element FM right after this. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto and 95.7 in Ottawa. Today's guest is Charlie Angus. He's a, an NDP member, federal member of Parliament for the riding of Timmins, James Bay. He's on the phone with us from his home in Cobalt, Ontario. And as he was saying, he is snowed in with about four feet of snow. Um, and is it very cold up there, Charlie? How's the, how's the temperature? Well, the weather's warming up, so mm. spring is somewhere over the horizon, but it's been a long winter here. <laughs> right. Um, so listen to you, uh, I know a part of your background, and I don't know if it's something you still do on a daily basis, and that is uh, you're, you're a musician. You, you actually uh, traveled around with a band for a while, and, and uh, I, I read something about you always getting to the office early, picking up your guitar, and practicing for a couple hours. Uh, yeah, I mean, I quit school when I was 17 to go on the road with a punk band, L'Etranger, and we you know, played with groups like the Violent Femmes and the Dead Kennedys and nice. Billy Idol back in the day. And then I formed another band called the Grievous Angels, which toured a number of years, had a couple of Juno nominations. Um, we still play in various forms. And my new project is actually uh, I'm, I'm producing and helping to co-write with an incredible young jazz singer, Alex Bird, the Alex Bird Quartet. So mm-hmm. we were just in the studio this past month. But to me, music is so essential to to, to life. And, uh, you know, I, I learned my politics from, I learned more from a three-minute record than I ever learned in school. So uh, that's where uh, I, I think a lot of my political experience came from was, was, was off vinyl. Explain that to me. What do you mean by you learned more in a three-minute song? What, explain that. Well, um, you know, we were always growing up feeling that there was a bigger world out there, but we were, it wasn't a world that we could change, that, you know, we, we weren't, you know, rich enough, we weren't educated enough, and, you know, groups like The Clash came out and started saying, just get up and do it, take mm-hmm. a stand, you know, don't be afraid. 
and that whole DIY do-it-yourself punk ethos to me for me made me think, hey, there's a world out there, and we have a right to be part of it, and we can make change. And so I've always been, you know, certainly moved by political music, uh, you know, everything from, you know, the clash to, to public enemy to Tribe Called Red, I, you know, Burn Your Village to the Ground, man. That's one of my songs that every time we're in a big battle, I'm, I'm thinking that, right? So, but, you know, just music in general. I grew up um, in, a, in a very Celtic family, so singing and, and music to me is, is heart and soul. Yeah, I, I understand that. That's why I was a little surprised to hear that uh, The Clash was, was sort of one of your, 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 an influential piece of music for you. But I guess... Uh, I don't know. There's some there's some uh, uh, connection there with with the Celtic side of things. Well, um, you know, the Celtic peoples told their we told our history in songs. Mm. I mean, that's how you survived when you were. You know, folk music used to be the CNN for poor people. Mm. That was you know that's where where the history of what happened. I mean, the reason everybody knows about the Irish famine uh, and the attempted the destruction of the you know, traditional peoples in the Highlands is because we wrote songs about it. So mm. I came out of that song tradition, and fa- certainly my family knew a lot of the sort of more the political Scottish and Irish songs. But then, you know, hearing the clash and just that whole punk thing to me was a moment of transformation. Every now and then these cultural transformations happen where you suddenly say, hey, I could do that. Or, wow, I never knew that that was possible. So I think those moments are really important for people. So, you know, now that I'm older, I love watching it in younger people when I see them think, hey, this is possible. And I certainly see that with the young Indigenous uh, population in Canada. This is a moment of change, and uh, I just watch it and marvel. I, I think you're right there. I think it's true. That is something that has changed over over the years, is that uh, young Indigenous people are uh, making their voice heard more and not being afraid to stand up and realize that their voice counts and that they do have something to say and something to stand up for uh, for themselves and for uh, their nations and for the people uh, of, of uh, Indigenous Canada and North America. Um, having said that, you know, you had a request for, uh, or you at least gave us a couple of songs to play. Um, uh, Patti Smith, The Clash, and Bruce Coburn. So uh, they call it Democracy by Bruce Coburn. Uh, we have Clamp Down by The Clash or Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Wh- which one would you like to play? Well, we'll start off with uh, People Have the Power. Oh, there's, if you hear that, there's the train behind me. Yeah, was that the 11... 11 1127. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's 1127 coming out of Rwanda Randa with all this, with all this sulfuric dioxide from the from the from the smelter. But um, uh, I love people have the power, and it was actually my theme song during my leadership campaign, which I came in second. But mm. I came in first with Patty Smith because she actually gave me permission to use the song, so mm. uh, I was really uh, pleased. So uh, mm. people have the power says everything. All right, well let's see, let's give that a spin and listen, and we'll come back and ch- talk with. Charlie Angus right after this. And that was People Have the Power by Patti Smith on Element FM, and that was one of the uh, choices of our guest today on Moment of Truth, Charlie Angus. He's a federal member of Parliament for NDP in the riding of Timmins James Bay, and he's on the phone with us. We're so grateful that he's able to join us from his uh, Snowden home in Cobalt, Ontario. Charlie, uh, do you believe that people have the power? 
I am a big believer that people have the power, and I think that we need to make sure that people know they have the power. And part of that is is knowing and learning from great movements that have brought about political change. Nobody gave us anything. Everything that we have, we fought for. Uh, these are rights that came through long struggle. And I think in 2019, when we see a rising tide of xenophobia and you know, corporate interference, people got to remember, hey, if we work together, if we're determined, we can make this world a much better place. And that's my driving philosophy. People have power. Do you think we are moving in that direction or do we, you think we're, we're in, in an age where there is more interference, as you, might, as you just pointed out, from corporate affairs and, and, and corporate uh, business? Well, I think, you know, certainly we've been dealing with the SNC-Lavalin scandal in Ottawa, and people really need to get their heads and just stay focused on what this is really about. Because I see people saying, "This is, you know, this is was Jody Wilson-Raybould. Did she, you know, should she have talked to the prime minister? Maybe she just misunderstood him. You know, was Justin being overly nice to her because she was an indigenous woman? This is not about Jody Wilson-Raybould. This is about allegations of very, very powerful people." trying to interfere with a political prosecution in a case of corporate corruption. And that's how power has been exercised in Canada. There's, you know, on the one level, we have a prime minister who's very smooth and, and talks all the right language, and Canadians like to watch Parliament and see us debate and sometimes shake their heads at our behaviour. But power is exercised in another place, and it's in those back rooms and with the lobbyists and the phone calls made into the prime minister's office. And we need to shine a light on that. So uh, we are at a point where decisions are being made to benefit the super rich. Decisions are being made that favor corporate policies over people policies. Uh, and I think we can't just go along and say, well, you know, we're nicer than the, tr the world of Donald Trump, so let's go along with this. We have to say these are, in these are injustices, and these injustices need to be called out. And, you know, in Canada, I think one of the things that we've seen is certainly the Indigenous communities are speaking up now clearly and saying the Indigenous, the injustice against Indigenous communities, it ain't going to stand anymore. But I think for the rest of Canadian society, they can learn lessons and say, yeah, we shouldn't have to put up with running government for the favour of the super wealthy, the 1%, the billionaires, when... You know, most people can't even afford to get their, their teeth fixed and people are burdened down with student debt and people can't afford to live in a city like Toronto because they're living on endless contract work. Those aren't natural policies. They're the result of deliberate policies that favor one class above another. Mm. Yeah. Now, and I'm glad you pointed out that this isn't about Jody Wilson-Raybould. It's about SNC-Lavalin and, and potential wrongdoing there. Because it has been a focus, the focus has been on, on Jody and, and the situation uh, in Parliament rather than, uh, uh, you know, the falling out there rather than the, the, the company itself. So I'm, yeah. I'm glad you pointed that out. Well, I mean, we're seeing this crazy, you know, attempt to divert attention. You know, mm -hmm. who was the real feminist? Was Jody Wilson a real feminist or was Justin Trudeau the real feminist? <laughs> like, uh, you know, I have had more than my share of disagreements with Ms. Wilson-Raybould over her role as Attorney General. Um, I've been not shy about that. But her unwillingness to interfere in an independent public prosecution of an international bribery case 
that was her job to make sure that she didn't interfere. And it was her job to say to, you know, the heads of SNC-Lavalin who were calling into the prime minister's office, you don't get to interfere at this level uh, because you're up on charges. That's not right. Mm. And to see someone willing to take a political price for that, as well as Jane Philpott, who I was, you know, have extraordinary respect for mm. her decision that these are bigger issues. These are about constitutional issues. This is about the respect for the rule of law. Um, and the fact that we have the OECD uh, anti-bribery unit putting Canada on notice, it's got to be a wake-up call to Canadians. Like, you know, the rest of the world's watching, and they're not all that impressed. Right. Uh, we have obligations internationally to live up to a standard in fighting corporate corruption. And, you know, I hats off to Jody Wilson-Raybould. I've disagreed with her, but, you know, to stand up on an issue of integrity, that seems to really freak people out in Ottawa. But I think that we should be expecting more from politicians in those kind of situations to do what she did. <laughs> It, it's so it, it's not, it, it's almost well I'm, I'm laughing because it sounds so I don't know what else to say when you when you say you know standing up for integrity and and standing up for what's right you think well that's yeah that's part of your job that's what you're supposed to be doing that's what you're elected for <laughs> I mean you know, the thing I heard in Ottawa the whole first two weeks of the scandal well what's her end game mm-hmm. it's like woman stepped out of cabinet burnt her bridges with the government that she believed in, uh, may have ended her political career doing this. What is the end game? Well, sometimes speaking truth to power is the end in itself. Right. That should be the end in itself. And for Jane Philpott to do the same thing, who, you know, I think is arguably the most respected um, cabinet minister to say, in solidarity, in mm-hmm. good conscience, I can't go along with this. So uh, that is where Canadians should be watching and saying, you know, wow. Maybe it is possible for people to stand up and do things with integrity. So mm-hmm. I'm just saying to listeners, don't get caught up in this Twitter soap opera of like, yeah. you know, I mean, Sheila Copps' attack on Jody Wilson-Raybould, that if, there had been, if these were 9,000 Indigenous jobs, I'm sure she would have done something. I mean, mm-hmm. God almighty, Sheila, one of the reasons we know there are no 9,000 Indigenous jobs in the country is because governments like hers under Kretchen made sure that Indigenous people never had the right to benefit from their resources. Let's remember burnt church, you mm-hmm. know. Let's remember all the times governments intervened to stop Indigenous communities from from right. developing. So uh, the the attack on Jody Wilson-Raybould is off-base. Let's stay focused on who you know in the PMO. It's about corporate insiders. It's about international corruption and companies who think they're so big they can get away with it. Well, I don't think they should. Well, on those uh, light notes, uh, we do have to take a short pause, Charlie. So uh, we'll be right back on Moment of Truth with Charlie Angus right after this. We're back on Moment of Truth. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 95.7 in Ottawa and 106.5 in Toronto. And of course, you can listen anywhere across Canada by downloading the Radio Canada app and uh, just uh, typing in Element FM. That is E-L-M-N-T-F-M. E-L-M-N-T-F-M.ca. Uh, you can listen online through there or, uh, as I say, the Radio Canada app. Our guest this morning on Moment of Truth is Charlie Angus, the federal member of parliament for the NDP for the Timmins-James Bay riding. We are pleased to have him join us. Charlie's always been an outspoken person. Charlie, just before the break, um, 
you know, you had mentioned uh, burning bridges, and, and and you said that that's something, of course, you have done over over your own career, and that uh, you don't mind doing that sometimes. Uh, it's necessary for doing the right thing. Is that? Uh, yeah, I, I was quoted as saying that you know, um, if I got to burn bridges along the way, I burn bridges. Um, there's this thing in Ottawa, the sense that you know, we go there where it's all supposed to be, you know. We shake our fist during question period, and then we all go for drinks afterwards. Well, Mm. you know, I didn't go to Ottawa to sit in a big comfy chair and and not to make change. And I would prefer to do it, uh, you know, with respect and with, you know, with cooperation with the others. But when you see something that is fundamentally wrong, like uh, when I saw the situation that the children were living, going to school within Attawapiskat, you know, being educated on a toxic site where the le- threats of cancer were so high and nobody was going to do anything about it. And then the government canceled the school and I went and I tried to talk to them. And that was just, hey, this is just the way it's going to be. And I remember saying to Minister Chuck Strahl at the time, I said, you know, Mr. Strahl, I'll chase you through the gates of hell if I have to, but you're going to build that damn school. And they did, mm. uh, you know, so yeah, did I burn bridges? Definitely. But, uh, I, the idea of just saying, oh, well, you know, it's government. Oh, well, I'll shake my fist and then we'll just carry on. Sometimes night oil says, sometimes you have to take the hardest line. Mm. And when you, and I think there's moments and I've seen that time and time again, particularly in my work with indigenous communities, that you have to really shake government up and we saw that recently with cat lake when uh we had the minister just not wanting to answer not wanting to be responsible wanting to give us glib talk well you know people's lives are at risk here so we're going to do this the easy way we're going to do it the hard way but we're Mm going to get it done Mm -hmm. and i think that we have to have that attitude of urgency at times um given given the, the the kind of problems that we face certainly in the far north and indigenous communities but also on issues you know there's a whole series of issues that are facing us at this country at this time what uh, from your experience um would you like to see uh, happen uh if you could make it happen for indigenous people what would you what would you like to see started well uh, i have enormous hope for the future because I see the potential in this young generation. Um, so we need to end the, the funding gaps and make sure that we are building holistic education opportunities so that kids are not having to leave the reserve at 13 to live in boarding houses because the government will, will build them schools or the kids are giving up because they can't get qualified teachers. That The education focus for me is so primary. Long-term and structurally, we have to dismantle the Department of Indian Affairs. Mm. Um, Change ain't going to happen as long as it's there. Uh, And we need to start looking at how we deliver services that are responding to the communities where the communities are able to to build long-term based on their needs, their cultural issues uh, that's flexible. And it is possible. But, you know, the department is the department. It's always been the department. And, uh, you know, it ain't broke. It was built that way. And it's done a damn good job over 150 years of getting of, of denying rights. So mm. I want to see that department removed. That's uh, I don't think there's any any way around 
moving towards reconciliation, that has to happen. Mm. Mentioning reconciliation, truth and reconciliation, what is your take on, on the impact that that has had? Well, um, I think the truth and reconciliation work that was done by, you know, Justice Sinclair and the team uh, is a is a historic moment for Canada. It opened up a conversation. It's opened up an awareness. You know, in my riding, I go to little rural schools, and they're learning about the residential schools now. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody ever taught us that when I was in school when kids were in, still in residential schools. So um, that's been really, uh, uh, you know, that's a moment of transformation. Uh, I guess, personally, I still feel very mixed about it because I deal with the St. Anne's residential school survivors who mm-hmm. suffered, not just some of the most horrific physical and sexual abuse it could ever be. Well, actually, you can't imagine what they suffered. Uh, but their rights are still being fought against their basic legal rights in court. The government is still suppressing documents. The government is still going tooth and nail. And to me, St. Anne's is a symbol uh, of the overall issue. If we can't get justice of survivors of such horrific abuse, we can't talk that we've got reconciliation in this country. And I've said that to Minister Bennett again and again and again. And it's, you know, it's one issue I will never drop as long as I have the power to fight to be with the survivors of St. Anne's, and they shouldn't have to fight. They should never have to go to court, but we're still in court. The government's mm-hmm. still suppressing evidence. And it, you know, so it, it makes, it cheapens the talk of reconciliation when we have to use some, when they use so many tactics against people who only crime was that they were Indian children. Yeah. And, and uh, on that note, I've heard uh, several people, uh, indigenous people that I've spoken with, uh, uh, in around my community as well as other communities that say, you know, it's it's not reconciliation. Uh, we have nothing to reconcile. It's Canada that has to yeah. reconcile. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I mean, for a while, Minister Bennett was using this hashtag gifting reconciliation. And I challenged her and it's like, you know, gift reconciliation. You know, it was the government of Canada who lied. It was the government of Canada who set out to destroy the family structure, and it was deliberate. Mm. And, you know, when they realized the residential schools weren't doing a good enough job, not in their absolute failure of education, but in their obligation to, their their duty to try and destroy the indigenous identity, they moved to the 60s scoop. The 60 scoop was a policy because they thought it was more efficient way of destroying Indian identity. And, you know, we're still picking up the pieces. Certainly in my region, St. Anne's is the dark shadow that hangs over communities mm. across the region. And mm. we still are waiting for justice. So um, the community said nothing to reconcile. Canada's got to live up to it. And again, I think ordinary Canadians have moved a lot down the road on this issue. They, mm-hmm. They're beginning to understand. The younger generation gets it. But um, we do need to show more respect for the survivors who are still being denied rights. And certainly it's ongoing with the 60s scoop families, too. So um, the, this is the work that's got to get done, and it has to get done now. Right. Uh, let's go back and talk a little bit about uh, the National Suicide Prevention Action Plan. Uh, I know you, you were talking about that earlier. Uh, do you want to elaborate more on that? Well, Canada is the only G7 country without a suicide action plan. The province of Quebec put one in place. They dropped their suicide rates by about 50%. Um, 
the you know ITK the Inuit organization have put one in place. We need the federal government at the table, and I've seen this through my work uh, in the suicide crisis that we've seen in the north. Time and time again, the federal government sits on the sidelines, does not respond until say, the New York Times calls them. We need to get proactive. We need to be working uh, in culturally sensitive um, support networks that put resources on the ground in advance of a crisis so we can avoid the crisis. That's, that's, that's job one. We also need to have better documentation and statistics because there are certain demographics, certain communities that have much higher rates of suicide than others. So why? Mm. What are the problems there? Is it, you know, uh, legacy of sexual abuse? Mm. Uh, is it, uh, you know, there's a number of factors, but once we know where those pressure points are, we can start to put resources in play. And, you know, it has to be said again and again and again. It's not just, you know, we focus on this is an Indigenous issue when this is a pan-Canadian issue. This cuts across demographics, all cultural groups. Um, so we need the government to be there, and we need a conversation about mental health and taking, you know, dealing with the threat of suicide. So uh, that vote is going to be coming up in April. I've been pushing it across party lines. We'll have another vote a debate on April 8th on it. I'm hoping, I'm pretty sure I have the Conservatives on side. I still haven't got a sense that the Liberals are going to support me. But um, this is a moment to do something positive in this Parliament. And uh, this Parliament began with the big debate about the suicide crisis in Attawapiskat. So let's end this Parliament with actual steps and put resources on the ground to help and uh, lower these, you know, the numbers of such, you know, such tragic and needless deaths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, understood. Thank you for that. Um, listen, I'd like to move on and talk about something uh, in in the Toronto area, something that's been been in the news of late. The sidewalk Labs. Um, what, what's your what's your your take on that situation? Well, I've been paying very close attention to the Sidewalk Labs deal uh, because um, the government, the Trudeau government, is really has, I think, unhealthily close relationships with the big data giants, Google, Facebook, Amazon. The idea of transforming 13 acres of downtown waterfront into this Google experiment, I think people thought was, hmm, that's interesting. But what does it mean? Uh, we now learn that the whole plan was literally for the whole waterfront. Uh, how did that come about? There's a lot of questions about was Google given the, you know, we're giving some of the prime real estate in North America to an American data giant. Uh, what What's in it for the citizens of Toronto and the citizens of Canada? So I think there's a lot of unanswered questions about this deal. I think we got to start looking at this issue of surveillance capitalism, like the power of these companies who make their money by doing every single thing we do, and we're going to start to hardwire a city so they can do that. I think there's a lot of issues from the rights, issues of privacy, civic rights, but also if we're going to build smart 21st century cities, are we just going to let it be done for the economic bottom line of Silicon Valley, or are we going to do it for the benefit of the citizens of Toronto? I think that's a really important conversation to have. Now, what about the, the uh, there was talk about how the, the, the area had grown from, I think, about 12 acres to, what, 300 acres or something? Do you... Yeah, this is the, the the really disturbing element is that there was this, you know, request for directions. It was an extremely short timeline. 
um, the, the, they kept saying, oh, it's only 12 acres. It's just an experimental plot. But now we learn that it was actually for the whole, you know, waterfront area, 350 acres. Mm. How is it possible that you could sign a deal to turn over that amount of real estate, which is, again, probably the most valuable real estate in North America right now for development, to a giant American company without telling anybody? Uh, it's just, just crazy. Um, and, you know, with all respect to Google, they were really the cool kids of 2008. In 2019, things are a lot creepier with the kind of ability to track and monitor. There's going to be a data trust, blah, blah, blah. We'll reassure people. But we're talking about the wiring of the public and private spaces of Canada's biggest city and have it being done uh, by the biggest data giant in the world that has had numerous problems with, you know, allegations that it's basically snooping on the people that uh, use its services. So I, I don't think it's a good deal for Canadians, and I'm certainly not happy by the lack of answers I've gotten from the Trudeau government on it. Mm. Charlie, uh, we're running out of time, and I want to play one more song uh, when we leave that uh, kind of ties in with, with kind of what we've been talking about to some degree. But I also want to read this. Uh, I was just handed this from our, our morning news person, Kathy Sabokin. It's a, a, an announcement from Transport Minister Mark Garneau, who says, as a result of new data as precautionary measure, the 737 MAX 8 commercial uh, passenger flights are now restricted domestic or foreign over Canadian airspace. And he adds that the new evidence is not conclusive, uh, but that's the latest coming out uh, from Mark Arno and the and the government uh, on the uh, on the the tragedy that happened the other day and uh, and these these Boeing planes. So um, that's that's that. Uh, uh, Charlie, I want to uh, just again say thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Miigwech, and uh, and thank now, you, thank you, and and it's been great speaking with you. I thank you for your time. I thank you for your words and support. And uh, we're going to leave. Uh, with at least one song. We'll see if there's a little bit of time for more. But uh, but how about uh, They Call It Democracy by Bruce, Bruce Coburn? Uh, a song perfectly written for the SMC <laughs> scandal. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Charlie uh, Angus is the federal member of parliament for the riding of Timmins James Bay uh, for the NDP, and he has been speaking with us today from his home uh, up in uh, Cobalt, Ontario. Thanks for joining us, Charlie, and uh, all the best. Thank you so much. Take care. This is uh, Bruce Coburn on Element FM.